Hello and welcome. It's the Fan Checkdown on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Matt Marchese, Donovan Bennett with you here. Also, wherever you get your podcasts. And we got a busy show today. We got former NFL head coach, Grey Cup winning head coach and contributor to the 33rd team, Mark Tressman. He'll join us in about 10 minutes time. And then in the second block, she is the princess of darkness herself. <laughs> former Raiders CEO. CBS NFL analyst and co-host on what the football podcast. She is Amy Trask and she will join us in the second block. Don, I have to ask you this question because um, I'm working from home today because I'm still a little bit under the weather, as you could probably tell. And when I'm working, I have to have the TV on or music. Like I cannot function without sound me and my thoughts is not a good place to be. On AMC today, they were playing draft day. So I was like, I'm I'm locked in here. I'm getting my work done. This is good. Where are you at on draft day? Because I know a lot of people that are football purists do not like it because it's like, oh, that's not how the draft goes. Yes, I know. But it's a football movie, and I think it's great. I watch it every year before the NFL draft. I'm going to upset you. I have not watched draft day. From beginning no? to end, it's been on. Oh, like man. you know, you you know, you, yeah. you go into a hotel room, you just turn on the TV just because you you want some sound, and it's been on. It's been on the background, but I have never sat down and watched the movie in its entirety. I think you need to. Do I? It's totally, it's totally a sham. Like how what happens in the movie and everything. Like it's it's never that would never happen in the NFL, but it's a movie. Football movies are binary. They're either great or they're terrible. There's no in-between. The program, great. Any okay. given Sunday, great. Yep. Little Giants, terrible. Oh, but that, but come on. Little, actually, it's funny. My cousin texted me that he watched it with his kid the other day for the first time. And he talked about how great it was. I mean, okay, Little Giants can't be put in the category as those other two movies. It's not for adults. Fair. Like, like your boys will absolutely love that in like five years. Will they? Like, yeah, the they Sandlot is also not for adults. Also, an outstanding movie. <laughs> yeah, but oh, hold on a second. When would Little Giants have come out? Like, were you? I'm trying to think of the age in which you watched both of those movies and the correlation to like. There's, there's that thing um, that people talk about, like the music that you listen to between like the ages of 14 and 18 is the music that sticks with you. It's the music you always go back to. That's like your go-to music. I feel like movies from your childhood fall into that same category. So I'm trying to figure That's out the age and the age in which you watched Sandlot as opposed to Little Giants because I think Little Giants came out after. But what that just tells you. When in your life do you have the amount of disposable time that you can watch a movie over and over and over? Me and my brother have the entire script of Weekend at Bernie's, one, two, <laughs> and three, like, memorized, because we just watch it over and over. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, in yep. that same wheelhouse. So I think that's what you're speaking to. Yeah, I think so. I, like, I, was, I watched Hook, as my mom would say, on repeat and repeat. Uh, it was it was a lot like put it in, rewind it. Yes. Yes. Kids. We had to rewind our videos and movies when we were children. Um, no, no, no. Not only did you have to rewind them when you got a movie from Blockbuster. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, Be yeah. kind. Please rewind. Like that was a fine. If you didn't bring it back, rewound. 
by the way, that was a horrible movie. Be kind and rewind with Jack Black and Mostef. It was horrible. Uh, anyway, uh, besides the point, uh, speaking of horrible, uh, we didn't get to this yesterday. So the now infamous, although, I mean, he's made some really bad calls all year. Brad Allen, the infamous Brad Allen. Uh, he's certainly not going to get a statue in the great city of Detroit. Um, there will be no Brad Allen uh, statue outside Ford Field. Um, after that debacle in that game, he gets Steelers Ravens, a nationally televised game. It's the only one in its time slot. Um, this has a lot of meaning. Explain to me how Brad Allen got this job for this game and not Jets Patriots on Sunday. The only explanation is the league office is like, you got to make this right. You got to go and you got to have a clean football game so we can eradicate this conversation. We're not going to do you any favors, Brad, and bury you at one o'clock on Sunday for two teams that are not in playoff contention. So your face never reaches the red zone channel. Oh, no, 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 my friend. You are going to prime time and you're going to be on your P's and Q's to alleviate any concern. And guess what? It's going to be your last game. You're going to have an early offseason, get the pitching wedge out because you will not be seen in the postseason. That's the only way it makes any sense. Or Roger Goodell is just trolling all of us. Well, that was going to be my next point was like not trolling necessarily, but it's more like, no, no, we're going to double down on this guy. Oh, you think you're right? No, no, no. We're going to put him right back out there because we don't listen to you. We do not listen to you, the fan base, about your thoughts on the officiating and this, like the people of Detroit and betters uniting in hating Brad Allen right now. It's just for me with a game that has so much, and this is not me talking as a bills fan. This is just me talking in general as a football fan. This game has a lot of meaning for one team. By the way, Tyler Huntley pro bowl QB will start for the Ravens. That was confirmed to us yesterday. Um, I just don't see how this is a good move by the NFL. Like, are you that, are you either that confident in Brad Allen or it's like you said, no, no, you're going to go and fix this and then you can disappear because we're not putting you on any game in the playoffs. Like it has to be some semblance of that, right? Well, how could you be confident with Brad Allen? Cause people are, cause people are stupid. Donovan in, in, in the history of this world, we have had stupid people doing stupid things, running businesses, running leagues. Like, we've seen it. This you, is nothing new. You watch a lot of football. Every, I do. Every week, every weekend. How many other head officials' names that are not rules analysts for a broadcaster do you know? Like, this is, uh, we're not in the Ed Hockley era where the NFL officials were somewhat, you know, rock stars. How many other officials do you know? This is the uh, one. Yeah, well, I know, I know, I don't know if he's still officiating, but I know he was as of last year. Jerome Boger, because he's got the great voice. Uh, and it's not really a normal voice, which is why I love it. Uh, Sean Hockley, uh, Carl Cheffers. Uh, this is makes me sound like a really big nerd, the fact that I just gave you three officials. And there's one I can, Ron Tordal, pretty sure the guy with the glasses. Pretty sure it's Ron Tordal. So the fact that I know four of them and Brad Allen is probably just. Like, I would say the average fan does not know four officials. I would say that with a lot of confidence. But we know him because he keeps making mistakes. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100 you always know the person that makes the most mistakes because it's always the most egregious things. Like, if you make – and it's not even it's not even that 
they make the mistake. It's that they make the mistake in big spots. If you make little mistakes here and there, nobody knows who you are. But make the big mistake in a big spot, everybody knows who you are. No, I actually think it's because they make the mistake and double down on it. Like they're, And then make another one? Well, no, <laughs> but there's no accountability. Like, they wanted us all to believe that the three offensive linemen and the head coach for the Detroit Lions either lied or misremembered as if they were speaking to Congress about Balco. <laughs> they, to the pool report, said, oh, no, 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 70 is the one who reported, even though, like, if you watch the film, 70 goes in that direction but never really gets close to him, and they never actually make eye contact. So it it is uh, it is the reason why these officials don't have to have post-game press conferences because what the league does not want is Brad Allen trying to, you know, go to the people's court and adjudicate what happened and didn't happen. And then we're clipping it and we're playing it on the Monday morning shows and we're making TikToks out of it. So you just give quotes to a pool reporter with no video. And hopefully we just sweep it under the rug and move on to the next game. We got this text from uh, Dan and G town and he names, you know, when you talk about knowing officials um, in baseball, you know, who all the bad ones are. You do not know who the good ones are. He, so he says, you know, Angel Hernandez, Cowboy Joe West and CB Buckner for baseball. You know who they are. You know who the bad ones are. And that, and that's more to your point about. Um, but also just, in baseball, your, your, your strikeout call is, is your signature as well. Like there's a, a, a somewhat of a difference when you punch somebody out. Oh yeah. I love a good one. Like who doesn't love the really elaborate, you know, strikeout call, on a called strike, even when it's, you know, six inches outside the strike zone, like a lot of Angel Hernandez and CB Buckner's were. I love how uh, so, we don't want taunting in sports, but the official can just taunt you when you, <laughs> when you catch one looking. Yeah, he's supposed to be neutral, right? Like, it's almost as if he's cheering for the other team in that particular moment. Um, that's a really good point, because where's that in the in the, the in the code? For baseball, like where, where does that exist that an umpire doesn't show up a guy? Because the other thing is too, is the umpire. And I don't mean to get too into the weeds on baseball here, but the umpire is the one making that call. He holds your future in his hands with that call and then makes you feel bad about it after. And all he has has to do is a closed fist. He doesn't literally have to go Mike Tyson punch out and punch (laughs) you out. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Um, we're going to get to this with, uh, we're just trying to contact Mark Tressman right now. Um, the, I wanted to switch gears here a little bit, uh, but maybe we could get into the officiating thing with Mark. Cause I mean, he's been on the field. He knows what it's like to deal with these officials, but I wanted to talk about the coaching hot seat because by this time next week, there will be plenty of teams that are looking for a new head coach and will be starting their process. The Panthers already chargers and Raiders are all looking for head coaches who else do you, who else do you think is looking for a head coach next week? Like I, I, I feel like if the Falcons don't make it, like I can't. Although Arthur Smith got the job to begin with, so I don't know how he did that. And to keep the job after another year would be a surprise. But he could go and say, "Well, we don't have the quarterback." Well, you could have traded for Lamar Jackson. Um, I think New England's going to be looking for a new head coach. I think Washington's going to be looking for a new head coach. Uh, 
Adam Rank made a good point about the Bears yesterday. Actually, you know what? We got our guest on the line now, so let's let's get to him here. Uh, Mark Trussman, former NFL head coach, great cup winning head coach and contributor to the 33rd team, joins us. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing awesome, guys. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for doing this. So we, we were just having a conversation about officiating in the NFL, and we were talking about, you know, Brad Allen getting a, a nationally televised game after the debacle that happened in Detroit. When you're in a game, like, how much conversation do you have with officials? And even in your pregame, like, Dan Campbell talked about how he brings the officials into the office, and this is what we're going to be doing, and all all of these things that go into the game so that there's no miscommunication here. How did you see that whole play play out with the, the two-point conversion called back and, and the linemen, you know, not reporting, all of that stuff? Like, as a former head coach yourself, how did you see that all play out, and what was your take on it? Yeah, um, well, Dan Campbell's absolutely right. And and just to give you what happens is prior to the game, the officials will always come by and introduce themselves. And during that time, anything special that we would be doing offensively, defensively, you know, in the special teams game, you know, we are open with the officials as to what will we be doing. That's number one. So they're aware of it. Um, on the other side of it, they'll come in and tell us what they've watched on tape and to be alert with our players if somebody's lining up, you know, offsides at times, whatever. We've seen that play out over the weeks. Um, during the game, the players understand when they come in as ineligibles that they have to report on every single play. And this was clear. This happened when I was coaching with the Ravens. This happened to us on a Monday night game. We scored a touchdown. Our player had walked up to the official, looked him in the eye, and we are really relentless and anal about this as we practice goal line and short yardage to make sure that our player doesn't just signal with his hands but walks up and looks at the official in his face and tells him he's going to be ineligible. So all these things are special situations football that, are covered in training camp, are covered with the officials prior to the game, and are reinforced with the players to do that. And it costs us a touchdown in the game in Arizona back in 2016 or 17 because the officials said that we did not, you know, report appropriately. You know, there's been a conversation around this play that, well, well maybe, you know, there were too many linemen around the official. You know, Panay Sewell um, was around him as well. And that, you know, Skipper was coming into the game at number 70 and reporting. And so, you know, I assume that the official thought, well, it's 70 reporting again, even though they were doing that to set up the fact that now it would be 68 reporting. You as coaches go through all of this stuff, you scheme, you design, do it in detail. You even scout the officials in terms of what are the types of things this crew likes to call and how will we play accordingly. Then when something like this happens and there's no accountability for the officials, it, it, it must be frustrating. How do you balance telling your team, listen, we can't leave it in the officials' hands, but also understanding that there's only so much you can do as, as a play caller and a head coach. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, it's a great point. Um, the officials are not full-time professionals like the coaches are and the players are. But the way I've gotten around it my whole coaching career is 
no one play is the difference in a game. You can argue that it is, but it really isn't. It's a, it's a compilation of a lot of things during the course of the game. If that wasn't the case, we could point out one player, one coach each and every week that if he would have done his job correctly, we would have won the game. And that's just doesn't make any sense as you look at it, you know, in, in total. So, you know, you know, the official made a mistake. He's not a professional. That's always been the issue with coaches in the national football league. They're not full time because they're not full time. They're lawyers and doctors and engineers or whatever during the course of the week. And this is a part-time job and a new, and a, you know, for the, for the officials, it's never going to be perfect. The only thing that could happen is the official admits he made a mistake. You know, the, the NFL has to create some kind of accountability relative to his performance and they do. And uh, we have to move on, but the way to get around it as a coach is simply, we did everything we could do. Somebody made a mistake, but no one play made that made the difference. Unfortunately with, with, uh, television, instant replay, uh, you know, uh, uh, social media, it's blown out to be much bigger uh, because of that. But that's the reality. you got to move on to the next thing, and I think Dan Campbell's done a great job of expressing that to the media and his team. Mark, why do you think we're at a point where they aren't full-time? We were talking about games that are wagered on, that the league has accepted gambling. This is a billion-dollar industry Yet the, the, the coach of the cheerleaders is a full-time employee, but the officials who have a huge role in the game are not full-time. Clearly, you, you, guys not- are, you guys are totally, I feel your passion and I'm pointful. So let me tell you a quick story. In 1985, I was working for legendary Bud Grant. Everybody in Canada you know, can remember Bud Grant, what he did at Winnipeg and as an NFL Hall of Fame head coach and CFL Hall of Fame head coach. And, and Bud would ask his assistants uh, to meet with the officials because he refused to do that because, now this is 1985, that they weren't professionals. And we used, he used to joke, uh, myself and Pete Carroll were on the staff, and we were the coaches responsible to go, to go uh, meet with the coach, meet with the officials before, before the game. And Bud had a sense of humor, but he would tell us, go meet with them. But if you shake their hands, I'm going to fire you. That's how, and it was a, it was a point of humor, but it was also Bud making a statement was, you know, we are professionals here and the officials aren't, and we need to have, you know, professional officiating uh, in the national football league. And certainly, certainly the league has the money to make that, uh, make that work. Uh, Again, there's a balancing act because the best officials you know, may not want to quit their jobs as doctors, lawyers, engineers, businessmen uh, to to work full time in the National Football League. Mark Tressman, former NFL head coach, Grey Cup winning head coach and contributor to the 33rd team, joining Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett here on the fan checkdown. OK, uh, you do great work for the 33rd team. Like, I love the the write ups that you've done. And, and your latest uh, from a couple of weeks ago was on Baker Mayfield and and the revelation that he's been at the helm of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's got them on the cusp of making the playoffs. It's win and you get in against the worst team in the NFL and, and things are looking up. But that that wasn't the case for Baker Mayfield for, let's face it, the last 
two or three seasons where we looked and went, well, what's the future here for Baker? And he looks like he's played himself into another contract, whether it be with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or with someone else. What have you seen from him specifically that makes you think that this is, this is sustainable over the course of a few seasons for Baker Mayfield, things that he's done differently in years past, or is it just, he's in a better system that really fits Baker Mayfield. Well, Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, all your questions have great content to them and thought. I, I do appreciate the questions and they're fun to answer. Um, this week, just um, to, to draw a comparison, I'm doing a feature on Mason Rudolph of the Steelers, who over the last two weeks has thrown for almost 200 yards, and the Steelers have scored 30 points a game. And he's been a, he's he was in their their locker room and their quarterback room for the last six years. And uh, the point I make in the article is that every quarterback in the NFL goes through a a different journey and they should never compare their journeys to others. And I always reflect back on Kurt Warner, who was, who was, uh, you know, bagging groceries uh, a year before he became a Super Bowl MVP and a hall of famer. You know, Steve Young didn't start till he was a 30 and became a hall of famer. You know, Brock Purdy was Mr. Irrelevant. He's on a different journey than so many. And then you've got uh, Rich Gannon who became a MVP at 35. So, Every quarterback is different. That's number one. Uh, you know, Baker had had a pretty good start to his career. I think Cleveland went 11 and five in their first year with him as a starter. But maybe he wasn't ready emotionally. Maybe he didn't have the maturity to lead a locker room. There's a lot that goes into it. And so he's been humbled through his evolution. You know, of being in Carolina. You know, showing up in in L.A. two days before a game and winning a game. Um, so his, his journey has been different. And so now he's been five, six years in the league and you can just tell, you know, he's, he's using his gifts, which aren't superior, but are good. Um, he's in a locker room that is stable, uh, with Todd Bowles as the leader there. Um, Canales has done an excellent job of, of putting an offense together, together that meets his, his needs, the offensive line is playing at a very high level, and he's got superior receivers and a running back in Godwin, in in Evans, and I can't remember the running back's name off the top of my head, but they're running the football effectively. So at the end of the day, um, with solid defense and an offense that plays is is been created with players around him and an offensive line, he's been able to create and make plays. So his time has come. And he is interviewing not only to be the starter in Tampa, but just like Mason Rudolph, he's interviewing for all the other teams as his value continues to, you know, increase with, with his level of play. You have had your hand in developing quarterbacks in so many different scenarios. So obviously you understand that it does take time. But for me, one of the biggest issues with team building right now is economics dictate the development of the quarterback do we know if he can be a star by year three? Do we need to re- move on and reset the clock and bring in a younger player to keep our costs down? Can we afford to give the majority of our cap to this player and still win after we do that? How do you approach developing a QB with the business side of the sport, given that the economics at that position sometimes make franchises play great money to good players? 
sorry about my long, unfiltered answers. I, I hope I'm not going too long. No, it's uh, great. Number one is I can't really I can't really speak to the economics of it, but I can tell you from thirty thousand feet that I don't think overall there's an, a, a true understanding in a lot of places the importance and the level of importance of the quarterback room, and you can pretty much tell as you look around the league. Um, how how a quarterback can be developed by who's in the room. That's the most important room in the multi-billion dollar business that exists in the NFL and anywhere, whether it's high school, whether it's college, wherever it is, whatever league it is. If that room isn't right and there's not vulnerability-based trust in that room, there's not competency-based trust in that room, there's not a level of, of, of uh, respect uh, of a coach who has to be ready to stimulate and get his quarterback ready every day. If there's not a quarterback who's a gym rat and wants it more than he wants, you know, a television commercial, um, that's the starting point. Um, you've got to have competency. The quarterback's got to believe his coach can teach him and help him master the craft. But there's, there's a horizontal hierarchy that exists in that room, and it has to feature two people that love football but aren't going to put the team ahead of that aren't going to put the, the room ahead of the team. And it's very complicated, uh, but very at, at a very basic level. The cornerstone is trust, and, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. And if there's dysfunctionality in that room, the whole, the whole organization is going gonna, is gonna to be uh, – is going to implode. Mark, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, you know, ne- next week we expect that you know it's the it's the nature of the business. There are going to be coaches that are going to be fired, and they'll look be looking for work elsewhere. But I, I didn't want to talk necessarily about that, but more so the coaching interview process because it's not often that we you know we get to talk to someone who's been through the the interview process and and what that's like. Like what goes into that from your end? as someone who's interviewing for a head coaching job? Because I'd imagine that it's not a five-minute prep session if you're preparing to interview for an NFL head coaching gig. Like, do you you send over your playbook or part of your playbook to the GM or the, you know, the president or whoever it is? Like, what goes into that process in for the interview? Uh, for that's, an NFL that's another great job? question. And it's different in every place. But, but yes, I would send up a notebook prior to the interview because I felt like if they read it after the interview, it wouldn't matter anyways. But if they read it before they could, I would, I would know how much time they put into it and it would dictate kind of the way the interview went. So um, when I've interviewed for jobs, um, I pretty much have spent, my time is spent not on me because I knew they had vetted me. I knew they had vetted me, you know, um, at the, at the head coaching jobs, they had vetted me most for most for with people for most of my career. So I never talked about me. I focused on what I want the locker room to look like. And, uh, because I thought that was the most important thing, the, the leadership component and how I would lead the team and what the locker room would look like would be the most important piece of information that I would give them. And frankly, I knew within the first five or 10 minutes whether in, in the jobs that I've been hired on, I knew I was going to get the job because there was a connection. And I didn't know of the, the four head coaching jobs that I've had. I've, uh, I've never really had any relationship with the people that have hired me. So um, everyone is different because every, every leadership, every ownership group is different. You know, one place I, I met with four people. The other I just met with the general manager. 
Um, one time I just met with the owner. So, it, it, you know, you, you, you want to know who the, who the audience is, and then you prepare accordingly. But as you said, sending out, you know, a summary or an outline um, of what you did. And basically, my book was I started with the parade and worked my way backwards to the interview. And I covered every, every point between the moment I got from the press conference until the parade and, you know, how the tickets would be distributed, you know, what that would look like, the party, everything. And then I just worked backwards and I gave them a calendar of everything. You talked about the parade and working back. The Harbaugh family might have parades on multiple levels, uh, NCAA and pro. And I'm looking at the similarities between the two programs, somewhat positionless football, the spine of the defense uh, really strong, valuing linebackers and safeties, not having to take people off the field defensively, and redistributing the line of scrimmage uh, offensively. You know, the game can become basketball on grass a little bit. What do you see from the resurgence of defense and physical teams like the Ravens and the Niners and, and, you know, Michigan uh, on the college level, um, you know, bringing that side of the sport back? Well, you bring up the Harbaugh's. I mean, I have perspective. I I worked for John for two years in Baltimore, and uh, I coached with Jim. Actually, he was my quarterback coach and in quality control when I was the coordinator in um in 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 oakland so i know both of them well i'm friends with both of them and i can tell the listener they're completely different personalities they're not the same uh and they don't necessarily lead the same way but they lead authentically and i think that's the key is you know they're they're a coach's son um and they understand that the culture of a locker room is the values of the head coach and and they lead accordingly um, and then when it comes to X's and O's, you know, I don't think there's any head coach who doesn't, whether he's an offense or defensive coach, doesn't understand the importance of each side of the football. You know, John's relevance, his, he was in front of a team his whole career as a special teams coach. And, of course, that's always taken a priority for him. But, you know, in, in all cases, you know, if you're leading a winning football team, you've got to be able to win at the line of scrimmage and you got to be able to cover. You know, you, defensively, you got to have a pass rusher and you got to have cover corners because, you know, you're going to win or lose, you know, on third down, whether or not you can rush the passer and cover man to man. And then uh, special teams wise, I mean, you've got to be clean. And offensively, you got to win the line of scrimmage, both in the run and the passing game. So um, those are, are formulas that are probably universal throughout teams, whether you see it or not. But they've done a good job there, as you said. So you're saying John Harbaugh, uh, you know, might not be able to convince his brother Jim to be dancing in the locker room with his team after a win? <laughs> well, if, you know, John continues to, to dance, um, Jim, I'm sure, has some media following as well. You never know what can happen if you win a national championship, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, Mark, listen, this has been great. So informative. Uh, loved having you on. Hopefully we can do this again. Thank you so much for taking some time for us. We greatly appreciate it. Well, I, pre- I, I appreciate your uh, your preparation and the questions. I hope I didn't go, t- go too long. Uh, hello to everybody in Toronto. Uh, it was perfect. Thank you so much. There he goes, uh, Mark Tressman, former NFL head coach, great cup winning head coach and contributor to the 33rd team. Uh, we got to take a break. When we come back, the princess of darkness, Amy Trask herself joins us. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. 
little Antonio Pierce getting a vote of confidence, the QB carousel, all of that coming up with Amy Trask when we come back. This is the Fan Checkdown on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's a fan check down on the Sportsnet Radio Network and wherever you get your podcast. Matt Marchese, Donovan Bennett with you here. And pleased to be joined on the line. And I know she loves this nickname because I've heard her talk about it before. She is the princess of darkness herself, former Raiders CEO, CBS NFL analyst, and co-host of What the Football Podcast. She is Amy Trask, and she joined us on the line. Now, Amy, how are you today? Best nickname ever. Thank you very much for using it. I'm well, (laughs) and thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to have you on and uh, you're kind of the perfect person to talk about this part. I mean, you talk about everything, but this part specifically. So Devonte Adams gives Antonio Pierce a nice little vote of confidence. And it really felt like he was speaking on behalf of a lot of the players. Now for the past two hires, the Raiders have gone with John Gruden and Josh McDaniels, a little bit more of a big name and tried to hit the home run there. Seeing how those two scenarios went and seeing what Antonio Pierce has brought, maybe it's not Pierce, but maybe do you think that the Raiders might change their hiring process or at least how they evaluate their candidates after how these last two stints have gone? Well, um, for a couple of reasons, I think they should evaluate the processes, one of which you just noted how the last two full-time hires went, um, but also the manner in which this team is playing for Pierce. Um, We're seeing a rejuvenated team. And, you know, some people say, well, and you sort of alluded to this, is Pierce rejuvenating them or is it the absence of McDaniels that's rejuvenating them? And, you know, query whether it's one or the other or a combination thereof, but we're certainly seeing the team play with a passion and an enthusiasm and a commitment that we have not seen um, for quite a while. You know, when I look across the league at, teams and organizations who are doing well you know Harbaugh is dancing with his team the Lions are doing whatever Dan Campbell says you know everyone is excited to give Andy Reid a cheeseburger there is a intrinsic value to liking the person that you play for yet every year when we're looking for new coaches it's just who is the best play caller and not who's the manager of the entire roster if there's one through line in terms of these searches that evaluators should be looking for in their next leader of a team, it should be what? Well, I think you just used the right word, leader. The head coach needs to be a leader. And look, people lead differently. Um, Bill Belichick, and yes, I understand he's having a rough, rough season, but let's put that aside for a minute because nobody has a better track record over 29 years. He leads in one manner. Andy Reid leads in another manner. John Harbaugh leads in another manner. And look, the best advice my mom, the best advice I've ever received in my entire life was from my mom when I was a little girl. And she said, to thine own self be true. And I think that's what we see from the very, very best leaders. They lead in a manner that is true to themselves. So I do think leadership is of paramount importance. And leading in the manner that is true to you is of paramount importance. And look, different coaches bring different skills and different talents to the job. If you are a coach who's a phenomenal leader, but maybe not so drilled into X's and O's of task protection or do we play cover two or zone versus man, 
then one of the things you have to do as a leader is hire the best people and put them in a position to be their best. Hire the right coordinators, hire the right assistant coaches, hire the best people and put them in a position to succeed. And then you all succeed. Talk about that leadership and ownership is a part of that. You know, I believe of fish rots from the head down and you talked about advice. Uh, Al Davis, as you know, would often give unsolicited advice if he was still no, around. No, wait, really? <laughs> if he was still around <laughs> and he was at league meetings and he could pull David Tepper aside, he would tell him what? Um, well, first of all, I want to make a comment about something you said leading into this. I agree with you absolutely unequivocally that when you are the owner or the controlling owner of a business, you have ultimate authority and ultimate responsibility. And you can delegate that if you wish, but because you can always yank back that delegation of authority and of responsibility, it proves a point that a team owner, a business owner, the controlling owner of a team or business is ultimately responsible for absolutely everything. Um, you know, you use the fish in the head example. I just make it simple. If you are the controlling owner, you have ultimate authority and ultimate responsibility. And I think, you know, look, Tepper's issues with coaches and terminating coaches, you know, I don't know that Al, I don't believe Al would have looked as askance at that. He would have said, look, everybody's going to do it their own way. He's going to do it his own way. He paid a lot of money for that team. He's going to find out who he wants to hire. The line that he crossed, of course, that would not have resonated well with Al at all, it certainly didn't with me, is what he did with that beverage and the fan. Um, that's just, you know, that's just not something you do. Do I think Al would have necessarily said something to him about it? No, I don't. Do I believe Al and I would have talked about that? Yes, I do. Amy Trask, CBS NFL analyst, uh, co-host of the What the Football podcast and former Raiders CEO joining Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett here on the Fan Checkdown. So I, I wanted to talk about another West Coast team here and the hiring process because, you know, the Raiders have, you know, it's it's Vegas, baby. And now it's we, we got to have the big bright lights and, you know, you get the coach and, and all that stuff. And, and maybe it's time for a change in philosophy. Whereas I look at and I'm kind of going against the what I believe, but is it time for the LA chargers to maybe rethink how they go about their coaching search? Because we know that Brandon Staley came in at, well, at least we believe to have known that he came in at less money than Brian Dayball. They didn't want to pay the money to bring Brian Dayball in. They brought in Brandon Staley. Is it time that Dean Spanos maybe forks up a little bit more money and gets the big name head coach, whether it be a Bill Belichick or a Jim Harbaugh out of Michigan? Is that maybe the change that this organization needs instead of, you know, for lack of a better term, cheaping out at that position? Um, I don't know that I necessarily, or um, let me not equivocate, I don't agree that they've always looked to do things a less expensive way. I know that that is a view many hold of them, and certainly your point as to Staley is well taken. I just haven't seen it in all regards. I mean, for example, they are in the process of building a magnificent, spectacular new training facility for the team, not sparing a penny. So, you know, I don't know that that narrative is always correct. That said, you are right with respect to Staley. And I do believe they're going to approach this hiring cycle differently. All signs, all comments from the organization have pointed to them taking a new approach and approaching this in a manner they haven't before. And I think their search is going to be wide. And I I don't think they will constrain themselves financially. 
You mentioned Bill Belichick, so it would be remiss of us before we have to let you go not to ask about him and this potential last chapter uh, in New England. The Kraft family, speaking of ownership, has a real decision to make if it's not already made. You know, someone who helped you build the evaluation of your franchise, but with a high draft pick and the game changing and poor results in the last couple of years, you know, a duty to the franchise in its current state. Knowing the level of those conversations, what do you think that conversation is going to be like? Well, what I believe about Robert Kraft and Jonathan Kraft is irrespective of the decision they make, and that decision can be any number of things. It can be, we're going to keep Bill as coach, but we're going to move in a different direction with respect to all roster building and personnel moves. We're going to change Bill's role. We're going to let Bill move on. Irrespective of what that decision is, I think they'll handle it respectfully and gracefully and graciously. They're not going to treat Bill poorly, even if they decide to move on. So people who have been saying, well, you know, they might trade Bill. Well, sure, they might, but they're not going to do it without Bill being part of that discussion and part of that decision and happy and you know comfortable and happy with the answer. So I don't know if they'll decide to keep him, but in a different role or if he'll decide to move somewhere else or if he'll decide enough is enough, I'm done. But what I, I firmly believe, whatever they decide, it's going to be handled in a respectful and gracious manner. One more before we let you run here, because I know you got lots of things to do. On on Bill Belichick, what do you think the perception of him is around the league and how he runs an organization? Because let's face it, I don't think Bill Belichick is going to any team if he does not have full control of, of personnel and the roster, all that. Basically what he has in New England. He's not going to go and take a lesser role somewhere else. But seeing how some of the people who have branched out from the Bill Belichick tree – Josh McDaniels, Matt Patricia, like we could go down that list. They haven't had success because they've tried the Patriot way somewhere else and it hasn't worked. Do you think that that is something that may hold an ownership group back and say, well, the type of player that won under Bill Belichick exists, but it's less than it did when Bill Belichick was having a ton of success. Do you think that resonates around the league? Well, two responses to your question. I disagree with the underlying premise about Bill and that he's done and, and all of those things. And guess what you and I are doing? We are showing a phenomenal example to people who need this example. We are disagreeing agreeably. We are exchanging <laughs> thoughts in a reasoned and reasonable manner. And although we have a different view of what you stated about Bill, we're expressing our views nicely. So I disagree with the premise of your question. That doesn't trend. And, and as to the... I'm sorry? That doesn't trend. <laughs> you know what? We got to make that trend around the world. Um, disagreement can be great. Disagreement's healthy. Disagreement can be productive as long as we learn to disagree agreeably. But as to the second part of your question, as to the perception of Bill around the league, I think that's somewhat generational, if you will. And I don't mean in terms of age, but I mean in terms of owners who have been in the league a very, very long time, the Rooney family, the Mara family, teams that have, you know, I could go on and on, but, you know, fam teams that have been handed down and owners who have been in the league a long time versus owners who may have just come in in the last two years. So I think there's a wide variety of opinion. I just don't, you know, the premise with which I disagree is that Bill would only go somewhere with full control. He may be appointed of his, he may be at a point in his life where he says, you know what? I love to coach, 
I don't need any of the other stuff. I just want to coach. Now, I'm not suggesting that is his view. I'm simply noting it might be his view. Uh, listen, Amy, uh, that's a great answer. And, and again, we can agree on one thing. You have been a great guest for us, and we'd love to have you back on, if you would, please. <laughs> Amy Trask, thank you, you so much. You are very, very, very <laughs> sweet. And I love to join you because we can have these discussions and we can demonstrate <laughs> to people that you don't always have to agree, but you can be nice when you're disagreeing. And by the way, I think we should also agree that I have the best nickname ever. <laughs> I think that that is without question. Uh, it's, our, it's, the, it's, <laughs> it's the Canadian in us. We have to be nice. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for taking some time for us today. Greatly appreciated. And uh, enjoy the games this weekend. Thank you, and you as well. And thanks, as always, for having me. There she goes. Amy Trask, CBS NFL analyst, uh, co-host of the What the Football podcast, and former Raider, former Raider CEO, and of course, the best nickname ever, the Princess of Darkness. See, a lot of people would be offended by such a nickname, but she just takes it in stride. It's perfect because she does. She is not the Princess of Darkness, as we heard in that interview. But she's wonderful, and that's why I think it's so it, it's so great. Well, also, I think if Al Davis gives you a nickname, you just let, you like that's, that <laughs> yeah, is 100%. what it is. Uh, if, if he likes you that much uh, to bestow you with such a nickname, uh, then naturally you're going to feel uh, fond of it. I actually come in the middle of the two of you, so I guess we can you know have a triangle of agreeing to disagree. I believe Belichick would go somewhere where he himself isn't the one, you know, watching Mac football and evaluating tight ends. That's his favorite conference for sure. Yes. Well, the Naval Academies are his, his favorite. Um, if he's doing it with someone where he already has a built-in relationship with that person. So, for example, if he could go somewhere and appoint Jeff Ireland, a Parcells guy, as his you know, chief executive and agree that his sole goal and energy and focus is going to be on player development, building up the roster, scheming and evaluating, and that someone else could take care of that, understanding his sensibilities, then yeah, I, I think that's a scenario that he would entertain. But do I think he would entertain, you know, going somewhere where you'd have to build a team in a different way, playing a different style with with no input. Um, I mean, his mentor is the one who made the line famous. Uh, if I'm going to uh, cook the meal, you should at least let me buy the groceries. That was Bill Parcells. Yeah. Uh, Scott Pioli on line one, by yes, the way, right. to work with Bill Belichick, NFL network analyst, Scott Pioli. So speaking of Belichick, and we kind of alluded to this earlier in the show and then Mark Tressman joined us. So we, we kind of uh, bounced back on the, the refereeing conversation, head coaches and spots available. It feels like this is going to be a big offseason in terms of coaches that are going to be let go, doesn't it? Like I, maybe it more the magnitude of the coaches, but when you look, you know, we mentioned New England, we mentioned Washington, uh, we mentioned the three jobs that are already open: Carolina with a young quarterback, uh, the Raiders with. Um, whatever the Raiders have, Max Crosby and Devontae Adams. Uh, and then there's other ones uh, that, and the Chargers as well, who have a ton of pieces. I don't know. I really don't know of how this cycle is going to go because here's the, here's the one point that I will make. Offense was the hiring cycle last year. 
right? It was the offensive guys, or even the year before, like, we got to get these creative offensive minds in, the Zach Taylors, the Mike McDaniel. Like, we can go down the list. Everybody wants their next Sean McVay or, or Kyle Shanahan. The way that defenses have adjusted, do you think that that changes? Or do you think that it's still about offense because they need to beat these defensive guys? Yeah, well, I mean, when you look at some of the candidates that are in in conversation, like, a, you know, a, a McDonald, then, yeah, you, you could go defense. I, I think when you look at who's had success early, someone like a D'Amico Ryans, that would tell you that maybe, you know, you should think defense. I, I just don't know that I agree with you that there are going to be that many jobs open because so many people have hired head coaches in the last couple of years. There are the, the roles that are already open that we know of that you mentioned. But, but New England, we think for sure. Washington, we think for sure. After that, I don't see many spots to potentially dance. New Orleans, if they move on from Allen, potentially. Which I think they will. At, at Tennessee, if Vrabel decides to go elsewhere. But outside of that, you look at the rest of the league, they are either teams that are good, thus not making a change, or they're teams that have hired a coach, you know, in the last year or two that are going to continue to ride that out. Do you see a lot of other open potential spots that I'm missing? Like did you, the Giants and Dayball, I think he's okay because he just got there. Uh, I see the Falcons. If they don't, I I, I could see the Falcons. Uh, I could see the Bears uh, per Adam Rank's conversation yesterday where he said, like, if they get blown out by the Packers, I don't care what you've done. That's a divisional game that, you know, after they embarrassed you already, that can't happen again. See, there's been Um, reporting that both of those are going to stay the same. Now, that could change, obviously, and I would disagree with both. But, but yeah, we'll we'll see. I'm just trying to see here. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think we could be looking at, like, seven coaching jobs available, which will be very interesting to see what happens with some of them. Uh, we got to run here. Uh, thank you to both of our guests that joined us on the show today. Mark Tressman was fantastic. Amy Trask is always great. Thank you to Donovan across the table, Austin behind the glass. We'll be back tomorrow with the fan check down on the Sportsnet radio network and wherever you get your podcast. Bye-bye.